The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for instruction, for, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. I want to take a few moments of silent prayer so we can confess our sins in privacy to God the Father to make sure we're in fellowship under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and ready to take in doctrine. While we're having silent prayer, somebody needs to adjust the sound because I keep getting questions from people down here saying they're not hearing us through, hearing me through the speaker. So use the prayer to get that squared away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to study your word because it is your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that teaches us how we should think and how we should live. It is your word that orients us to reality and orients us to your plan, which is the outwork, which is worked out in human history. Now, Father, as we look at your word tonight, study these things, may we be challenged by the example of Daniel and may we gain a greater appreciation for how to handle crises as we study the this man and see the wonderful impact the doctrine had on his ability to handle crisis. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and I believe that last time we got down to about verse 13. We're studying a chapter where there is a contrast between two great men. The first is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was probably one of the most Fifteen most powerful men in all of the ancient world. And yet, despite all of his power, all of his wealth, all of his, uh, all the nations that he had conquered over the years, he was a man who was plagued by anxieties. And these anxieties were triggered by an event that is reported in verse 1 of the chapter. They were told that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams. This was not a dream that was generated by the fact that he had perhaps eaten some uh, food that caused some uh, gastrointestinal disorder that affected his night's sleep. Neither was it affected by some uh, Freudian uh, subconscious eruption into his nocturnal uh, dream life. It was caused by an invasion and interference of Almighty God into his dream life because God is going to start working on Nebuchadnezzar. I believe that Nebuchadnezzar is going to become a believer by the fourth chapter of Daniel, but first he has to be humbled. And he is going to learn that just because he has risen to the pinnacle of human power, just because he is wealthier than all men, just because he has more talent and innate ability than any other human being on the planet, that that does not give him any greater position before God. 
we're told that God has put sort of a hidden agent in every single human being, according to Acts chapter, I mean, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. There we're told that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. And that means every single human being is born, and as they develop, they gain a, uh, a knowledge of God's existence. According to Romans chapter 1, 18, sooner or later, they know God exists. And at that point, they can either go positive or negative to God. And that's at that point that we call God consciousness. And every single human being reaches God consciousness at some point in time, whether they're in the darkest uh, region of Africa, whether they're uh, in the United States, whether they're in Asia, whether they're in uh, Southeast Asia or Central Asia, wherever they might be, every single human being reaches that point where they recognize that the heavens declare the glory of God. And at that time, they can either reject it or accept it. They can either say, I want to know more, or they can turn to worshiping stones and idols and trees and spirits and the stars in the heavens or whatever it might be. But if they are negative to God, sooner or later they start worshiping some part of the created order. And that had happened in Babylon for the most part. They worshiped the astral deities. They worshiped uh, Marduk was one of their primary gods, and they worshipped the stars. They thought that all of human history was governed by the stars. They had a, a form of fatalism, that everything is locked in place by the natural order and the synchronicity of the astral bodies. And Nebuchadnezzar now is going to learn that none of that is true. And because of this, uh, these dreams that he has, he begins to realize that this has something to do with his own life and his own kingdom and that it might just all be for naught, and it all might be temporary. And so he's going to call all of his advisors in. These are the leading intelligentsia of the, of the empire. They are the most, most uh, educated men. They are part of his cabinet, as it were, his council. They are the men who instruct him in all of matters from military to politics, State Department, foreign affairs, finance, whatever it might be. And he is going to challenge them to tell him the interpretation of the dream, and not just the dream, but not just the interpretation of the dream, but also the dream itself. And they react and they say, no one has ever done this in all of human history. How can you expect anybody to tell you the dream? That's impossible. That can only happen if God in heaven were to tell us. So that's the foreshadowing of and preparation for the coming of Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar is now at this time he's angry. We saw this last time that he is putting them to the test. If you believe that everything you stand for is true, all of your systems of theology, all of your systems of science, if you really believe that's true, then I'm going to put it to the test. You're going to be able to tell me exactly what I dream. And if you don't, then I'm going to execute every one of you and I'm going to turn your homes into a public latrine. For you Navy guys, that's a head. And that is going to demonstrate how, uh, how much I think of you and your families. And every time anybody in Babylon has to uh, go by your house, they're going to be commanded to go in and demonstrate exactly what I think of you. So that was to be their punishment. And, as, uh, and that brought us up to the 13th verse. And there we learn that the execution squad is on their way to arrest Daniel and his companions in order to execute them. Now, Daniel is also facing a crisis. Nebuchadnezzar faced his crisis, and he learned that things might not be what he thought they were, that everything he had devoted his life to might be temporary, might end up being blown away like 
like sand in a dust storm. And so he panics. He calls in everybody. He throws a temper tantrum. He tries to impose his authority on everybody and manipulate the situation. In contrast, we see how a believer is to handle a crisis. Because Daniel's crisis is more extreme than Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's crisis is his very own life being on the chopping block, as it were. And he is within minutes of a public execution, and yet Daniel does not panic. Daniel remains cool and calm, and he copes with the crisis. Now, earlier in chapter 1, we saw three ways in which Daniel and his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, resolved the conflict that they had. First chapter, remember, they were brought as hostages from Jerusalem to Babylon. And there they were put into a three-year training program which was to impose upon them a Babylonian religion, a Babylonian mythology, and they were to learn all the Babylonian arts and sciences and to prepare them for a role in leading the nation. How did they handle the conflict? This is the thing that faces every single one of us as believers living in a pagan society. And a pagan society is not a primitive society. Some of the most advanced societies of their day throughout human history were some of the most pagan. Pagan means any society that is built on a system of thinking that is non-biblical. That's what pagan means. Non-biblical type of thinking. It can be primitive or it can be sophisticated, but the issue is how well does it match biblical thought. So they are in one of the most uh, powerful pagan societies in all of human history and the way they handle it is not by fighting every inch of the way. See, we can because when the kingdom of man and human viewpoint come in conflict with the kingdom of God and divine viewpoint, there's going to be conflict at almost every single step. But if you try to battle every single step, you're going to frustrate yourself and you're going to waste away all of your efforts and expend all of your energy and, and, and fritter it away very quickly. You have to learn the first principle, which is to concentrate on a few issues and not every single issue. You can only learn the discernment to how to pick your battle from doctrine. It teaches you something about perspective. And they understood that the battle wasn't over their name, even though the new names they were given said something about them in their relationship to one of the pagan gods in the Babylonian pantheon. They didn't go to battle over that. They didn't go to battle over the curriculum that was imposed on them in the schools. A curriculum that taught them the Babylonian creation epic of Enuma Elite, which was just an unsophisticated form of Darwinian evolution. They have the same principle, chaos to order, at work in Babylonian mythology as you do in Darwinian mythology that is passed off as science, but it's just pseudoscience. See, they didn't go to battle over that. They didn't go to battle over the fact that they had to be taught dream interpretation, uh, oneurology. They weren't taught, uh, they were taught various forms of necromancy and various forms of divination, but they didn't go to battle over those things. What did they choose? They choose something that, one thing, that was a clear, stated violation of Scripture. They had been commanded under the Mosaic Law to follow a certain set of dietary laws. And they were supposed to eat a certain diet that was imposed upon them by Nebuchadnezzar. And they picked that as the battleground. So they concentrated on crucial central issues, not on peripheral issues. The second thing that we must learn from their example is you must be diplomatic 
tactful and respectful of authorities, even those that are hostile human viewpoint authorities, even when you don't agree with them, even when they're out in, way out in left field and you don't agree with their position at all, you still have to be respectful because they hold an office of leadership in a nation that's been established by God. They understand that the divine institution of government was established by God, and even though you may not respect the person, always respect the office. So we must be diplomatic, tactful, show good manners, and that's exactly what they did. They didn't challenge them. They didn't make it a, an ego trip. They didn't make it a personal one-on-one challenge, but they tried to diffuse the situation and make the issue uh, something that would appeal to the other individual scale of values. And that's point three. When you're faced with a situation where you get a no, and that was the first answer they got, was no, you, you can't follow your diet. You'll shrivel up. You won't be healthy. And I'll get in trouble. And they said, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's have a little test. Let's try it out. If we eat the way we want to eat, we'll be stronger, healthier, and have more energy than these other guys in 10 days, or we'll go back and and eat whatever you want us to eat. You see, they proposed a test that was based on the scale of values of the the Babylonian officer. You you may be at work in your career, and you realize that there are perhaps unethical practices. Well, you can't go to your boss because he doesn't care. He doesn't have an absolute scale of values. So you can't go to your boss and say, well, let's just be honest, because he doesn't care about being honest. What do you do? You appeal to him on the fact that then maybe honesty and a consistent ethic will, will improve business and customers will come back and in the long run they'll make more money. See, that's appealing to his scale of values. Your scale of values doesn't matter to him. So you have to learn to think strategically and to appeal to their scale of values in order to accomplish the task. And that's what exactly what Daniel and his friends did. Now they're faced, a sec- they're faced with another crisis, and this is an urgent crisis. Their life is in danger. It's about to be uh, snuffed out through the execution. And in this, we're going to see how they handle the crisis and how we should handle extreme crisis. Sooner or later, everyone in this room is going to go through some sort of extreme adversity. Maybe it's losing a loved one suddenly. Maybe it's a child, uh, a son or daughter, loss of their life. Maybe... Uh, someone in perhaps a son or daughter will rebel against everything you've taught. Maybe it's the loss of a job, economic disaster, where you lose everything. Maybe it's something that's not so personal. Maybe the nation goes through some sort of great depression again and, and you lose everything. But sooner or later, I find, every one of us is going to go through some sort of extreme adversity that is going to challenge everything that we believe and everything that we think we believe about God to the very core of our being. And this is the example that we need to hold up. Is what did, how did Daniel handle this crisis? Notice, he kept his head. He's cool, he's collected. Not because he learned skills on how to be calm in a crisis, but because he had doctrines so deeply entrenched in his soul that he knew that God was in control. His temporal life didn't matter because he knew the instant that he died... He would be face to face with the Lord. And so for him, temporal death was not a threat. Temporal suffering did not challenge him. And that brings up a point someday I'll spend more time on. That is, I'm amazed at how few Christians have ever seriously faced the reality of their own death. Still, I'm amazed how many Christians have never faced 
the reality of the death of their children. And until you are so occupied with the reality of an eternal relationship with God and its implications, and that physical death is simply walking through a door from time into eternity, until you come to grips with that, you will never be able to live for God. Because if you're not willing to die for the eternal truths of Scripture, then you will not be able to live for the eternal truths of Scripture. Because you'll be too consumed and constricted by your fears about a loss of life. So Daniel and his friends are not afraid. Let's look at verse 14. And Daniel replied with, or verse 14, then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch. Arioch was the captain of the king's bodyguard who came to arrest him, and he had come forth, we're told, to slay the wise men of Babylon. And the indication from the tense in the Hebrew, or the Aramaic here rather, is that they were already in the process of executing the wise men. The news is already going through the city that these men are being killed. Now that must have really shook the culture to its foundations. Can you imagine if we had a president with this kind of power who said, okay, everybody who's a bureaucrat who works for the government is going to die today. And started sending out the execution squad. This is a phenomenal thing that Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Can you imagine how the, the, the level of upheaval that it would cause inside of this empire to kill every one of the bureaucrats? But that's how angry he is because he's realized that everything based on their worldview is nothing but a bill of goods. It's false, it's shallow, it doesn't work, it's wrong, and he doesn't believe it anymore, and he's angry with them. So the men come for Daniel. We're told that he replied with discretion and discernment. Now that's an interesting way to translate these words. In the Hebrew, the first word is etah, which means counsel or wisdom. And the implication in this context is he remains poised and relaxed. Why? You can only have this if doctrine is controlling your thinking at the point. And you can't suddenly, when you're faced with a crisis, say, okay, wait a minute, what did Pastor Dean teach me about how to handle a crisis? You've got to have been practicing doctrine over and over and over again, practicing the faith rest drill, claiming promises consistently. You have to know promises, and this has to be embedded in your soul so that this is a second, uh, a reaction that's second nature to you. You instantly know God's in control of the situation. Even if I die, it's for His glory. But wait a minute, let's, let's relax and find out what's really going on here. So he's poised, he's relaxed, he's cool, he doesn't panic, he doesn't get emotional, he stays in complete control. The second word that's used here is the Aramaic word to M, which means appropriateness or tact. In other words, he's going to respond with with wisdom and tact. He is going to be diplomatic in the situation. He's not going to react in anger like, who do you think you are? Who does the king think he is trying to kill us? He doesn't get upset. He doesn't challenge Ariok's authority. He responds in a tactful way, showing respect to the authorities that are coming after him to take his life. This man, we're told, is the is the captain of the king's guard. Literally, the word for guards is the word Tavehaya, uh, which means the captain of the executioners. Those who are going, the execution squad sent out to uh, execute the um, wise men. 
Then in verse 15 we read, He answered. This is Daniel's answer. And it shows how calm he is. He just wants to get information. That's a very cool way to handle the situation. He wants to find out what the issues are so he knows which one to concentrate on. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Now, urgent's not a bad translation. The Aramaic word here is kasaf. Kasaf. And the basic meaning is to show insolence. To show insolence. But in this context, it has the idea of something that is harsh, stiff, rigid. Why is the king so harsh? Why is this such a such a extreme command? I mean, the crime, the punishment certainly doesn't seem to fit the crime here, and the king seems to be just over concerned with this whole situation. So why is he then so upset? So Arioch then informs Daniel about the matter. Daniel wants to get information, and Arioch is going to tell him exactly what is going on. So we come to verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king. So he goes, he talks to Arioch. He says, I want an audience with the king because I think I can solve the problem. Now, we're not told that. The the text skips over this. But the only way that he could get from his house to the king's palace without being executed on the way was if he had already told Arioch that he could solve the problem. So Daniel said, take me to the king and I will inform him that I can solve the problem. Now, I want you to get an idea of what's going on here. Here is this 17-year-old kid. He's just, he hadn't even graduated from his training yet. He's probably two or three months out. We studied the chronology problem last week. Uh, in first, chapter 1, he has him going through the whole training period. But when we compare the chronology of Daniel 2.1 with the situation at that time and Babylonian systems and counting years, this was probably just before... Is the end of his third year in training, just before his graduation. Nobody knows Daniel from anybody. And he's going to insist on an audience with the king that he can solve the problem that all of these wise men, all of the educated men, the most educated, experienced men in the kingdom can't solve. And this kid is going to walk into the king's presence with confidence. Now think about that. Seventeen years old. What gives him the poise and the confidence to do this? The impact he's having on think about the impact he's having on human history because of doctrine in his soul. He is going to change history at this point because of his reliance upon God. Now he's confident he's not arrogant. Sometime in life, when you tell somebody that you think the Bible means something, that there's only one way to heaven and that's Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And that salvation is not based on works. But salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. That it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, which means it's not by a ritual, it's not by participating in sacraments, it's not by giving to the church, it's not by any of those factors, it is simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone that we have salvation. Someday you're going to tell somebody that and they're going to say, what gives you the right to say that? I mean, everybody thinks they have, they know what truth is. Who They have a way to heaven. What makes you think you have a the market on truth. You're arrogant. Somebody's going to accuse you of being arrogant because you think you know exactly what the Word of God says. That's not arrogance. Don't get sucked into that. That's called confidence. There's a big difference between confidence and arrogance. And always the believer whose confidence is on the specificity of the Word of God 
is going to be accused by the pagan human viewpoint systems of the world with being arrogant. And it's not arrogance. It's confidence. Now, be careful. Don't do it in an arrogant manner. Sometimes people do that. When we know we're right, sometimes we have a tendency to get arrogant. But you can be confident and sure of yourself and dogmatic without being arrogant. So we're told here that Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time. See, Daniel has to have time. He has to... He knows that he needs to pray. God has not told him yet what the dream is or its interpretation. So he's going to petition the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to give him time in order that he might be able to declare the interpretation to the king. And then we'll see how Daniel handles the crisis. Notice he handles it. He's relaxed. He's poised because of doctrine in his soul. And then he goes back to his house. And in verse 17, he informs his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Now, let's stop there. You see, what he's going to do is go back and have group prayer. He realizes that before he can solve the problem, he needs to go before the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. That's a promise from Hebrews in the New Testament. But he understands the principle in the Old Testament. He has to go before prayer. And he is going to also recognize the principle of group prayer. Now, they don't even have what we have in the New Testament, which is the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, there's a mutual interdependence among members of the body of Christ. And that is the basis for public prayer and for group prayer. That's why we have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, because it is important for believers to gather together and pray together for certain things. And they are going to get gathered together here, and they are going to pray. And I want you to notice how they approach prayer. Now, prayer is not a problem-solving device, per se. Prayer is the expression of a problem-solving device. Prayer is the expression of several stress busters. They're going to express doctrinal orientation because they understand certain things about the nature of God. They understand some things about His grace and mercy. They understand that He is the God of heaven. And it's interesting to note that they use this phrase, God of heaven, in the um, books of the Old Testament related to the Babylonian exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel are the books where you find this appellation of God more than any other book in the Old Testament. You want to know why? Because the Babylonians thought that the heavens governed their existence. They were into astrology and astronomy and they were mixed together, but they believed that by studying the paths of the stars and by studying the moon and the sun that they could tell everybody's future and they would know what future events would be. But what Daniel is saying is that astrology is garbage. Don't ever waste your time with horoscope. With, there, there's a certain element of truth there that everybody latches onto because Satan's no fool. He never develops systems that don't have a certain amount of truth to them and that might appear to work in some people's lives. But it's demonism. And if you get involved in studying astrology and your horoscope, you're playing with fire. You're playing with demonism. And the Word of God forbids it. And what Daniel emphasizes and Ezra and the other books that use this title, The God of Heaven, is they're saying God is the one who controls the stars. He's the one who created the stars. They don't dictate anybody's destiny and you can't use them to tell anything about people's personalities 
or anything about their future because God is the one who's in control, not the heavens. So they understand some things about the character of God and they understand another crucial factor. And that is that prayer changes things. Prayer makes a difference. In the New Testament, we have a verse in James chapter 3, or excuse me, James chapter 4, 3 and 4, which states, You have not because you ask not. And that indicates the fact that prayer actually changes things. Now, one of the things that we'll discover as we go through Daniel is that in almost each chapter there's a crisis, and in almost each chapter there is going to be a psalm of praise and thanksgiving uh, emphasizing the fact that God is the God of heavens and God is the one who controls the destiny of the planet. That God is the God who changes the times and the epochs. That God is sovereign. And those who are Calvinist or hyper-Calvinist, and by that I mean they emphasize a, their version of the doctrine of predestination and election, that every detail in human history is under the sovereign control of God, and that every detail in history is predetermined by God, and in effect they nullify human responsibility, they nullify human volition by doing that, that they always go to a passage like this, and they they emphasize this, and this is the hyper-Calvinist dream passage. And they look at this and they emphasize the fact that, look, it's God who changes the times and the seasons, verse 21. He's the one who removes kings and raises up. See, God is sovereign, yes. God is sovereign. But in His sovereignty, God decreed that in human history, His sovereignty would work through certain means, through certain secondary means, and one of those was human volition and individual responsibility, so that there is true freedom in human history. And true freedom means true flexibility. Within the framework of God's plan, that's right, He holds the plan in His hand. He knows the times and the seasons. He's a, Jesus Christ controls history, and we've studied that many times. But within the broad panorama of history, there are gaps. And in those gaps, there's room for genuine flexibility. Let's look at an analogy. At the time of creation, God created all of the species. Every animal, every land animal, every sea creature, every creature of the sky was to propagate after their kind. So there are rigid distinctions between the species. However, within those species, there was flexibility. And those species developed various subcategories so that from your original canine type species, you develop many different breeds of dogs. That's not evolution. A dog is still a dog, a German Shepherd or Yorkshire Terrier. Some of you may not think that Yorkie is a dog, but it is. Dachshunds, I don't think dachshunds should be dogs, but they are. They're still dogs. You know, when you, go, you look at your high school textbook and they use the example of the white pepper moths and black pepper moths in England uh, from the 19th century and said that they changed from white, pepper to, from white to black, that's not evolution, it's still a moth. You know, that's change within a species, that's microevolution, nobody challenges that. What we disagree with is macroevolution. Species to species change. But something happened. When Adam sinned, all those creatures that God had created before the fall were herbivores. They were gramnivorous. They ate grass. They weren't antagonistic to one another. They weren't meat eaters. But after the fall, there was this incredible change. Now all of a sudden we have violence in the animal kingdom. 
Animals changed, became meat eaters. It affected their dental structure. It affected their gastrointestinal system. In other words, within this structure, God created enough flexibility to handle the chaos from sin. And the same thing is true. The problem with Calvinism, and they always say that, that people who don't believe their way have a small view of God. The problem with the Calvinist is their view of God is too small. They don't have a view of God that is large enough to control flexibility and still allow flexibility and freedom to man and still bring about his ultimate plan and his ultimate ends. So Daniel and his friends recognize this and they pray. They realize if they don't pray, they'll be executed. If they don't pray, Daniel won't get the revelation. They realize that there's freedom here. They have a choice to make. If they pray, if they apply doctrine, then they'll survive. If they don't apply doctrine, they won't survive. There is uh, real flexibility here. So, they go to the Lord in prayer uh, that God would reveal to them the mystery. They appeal to God's grace here. His grace is His racham, His compassion, which is grace in action. They understand the love of God and they're going to appeal to God to deal with them on the basis of grace and to reveal to them the mystery so that they will not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, it's not that he's... It almost sounds like Daniel saying, well, go ahead and destroy the rest of them, but not us. Now, remember, one of the first things that he did was that he, he stopped this action back in verse 17. And now... Excuse me. Now, in verse 19, in verse 19 we read... Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So apparently the four of them stayed up into the wee hours of the morning praying. They didn't just shoot out a bullet prayer. They continued to pray uh, to God and to argue their case. And we studied that before. And if you don't remember, get the tapes on the doctrine of prayer. Because there we saw that, that in pray- the prayers in the Scripture are thought out. And this is so important. When we get together in prayer... I'm always amazed, and always have been since I was in college, listening to people in public prayer. You know, if most of us talked to other people the way we talk to God in public prayer, we would be ostracized from being able to get involved in human conversation. We're boring. We're redundant. We're repetitive. I remember listening to one guy years ago. Every fourth word was Lord. The lousy grammar that we have. We always pray for the same things, the same people. It bores God to death. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to argue with God on the basis of Scripture. We're too lazy when it comes to prayer. We really are. It's amazing. And we ought to be challenged to think and to reason with God. If you, We're going to look at this prayer of Daniel in the next verse, in verse 20. And we're going to see in that verse that not once do they repeat a single word. Not once. Sometimes when you're praying out loud, I I don't want to make anybody self-conscious for prayer meeting next Wednesday night. But you ought to record yourself and listen to how many times you say the same phrase over and over again. Week after week. Some people always pray for the same thing. Same people week after week. Some people look at the prayer list and the sick list and they don't know who somebody is, they don't pray for them. They uh, always pray for the same people. You know, when there, there are ways to pray publicly. We ought to think about that. 
There are different categories of prayer. There's confession, which should be private. If sins are only between us and the Lord. There's prayers of thanksgiving. There's prayers of, of uh, intercession, where we're praying for someone else. There are prayers of petition, where we're praying for personal needs. Uh, when we pray for intercession, we're praying for somebody. We don't need to introduce God to that person. Remember, God's omniscient. He knows who people are. And uh, so we don't have to introduce God to them or necessarily explain all the details of the situation because He knows the whole situation. But on the other hand, don't let that be an excuse for not praying. See, Christians fall into that trap too. Well, God knows what I'll pray for even before I ask it, so why go to the trouble of praying? He knows what I'd pray for, so, so we won't pray. Well, you'll, you have not because you ask not, the Scripture says. We are to pray. We are to pray intelligently. We are to think through doctrinally what we want to pray for and craft a prayer accordingly. One thing I like when you have a group of people, let's say you have four different people praying together like we have in this passage, one person can pray a prayer of thanksgiving, another person can pray a prayer related to intercession for one group of people. Let's say you're praying for the sick, one person prays for the sick and stops. The next person prays for the seminary, seminary students, other churches, missionaries, something like that. Another person prays for the needs of the church. And then you've covered everything, and you don't have the same people. You know, Sometimes what you have is four people in a prayer group. Each person prays for everything in the prayer list. You don't need to do it that way. That's not a very efficient way of doing it. And it takes a lot longer that way sometimes. So each person takes a different group, and you pray as a group like one person would pray. Think about there are all kinds of ways to pray and involve yourself in what's going on in public prayer and not just... I think the reason some people don't come to prayer meeting is they don't want to listen to all those other people who just keep praying the same thing week after week again. But that doesn't apply here. That applies to some other church. So when we get to Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, Daniel answered and said... Here's how he starts his prayer in verse 20. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. Now, this is one of the greatest psalms and one of the most powerful prayers in all the Scriptures. The central principle of this prayer is thanksgiving. Last year we studied psalms. We saw there are different kinds of psalms. Some were laments expressing the problem, the adversity that the individual was going through. Some were uh, prayers of praise and thanksgiving, which is this category of prayer. It's a time for public adoration, public testimony, a prayer. You know, that's another thing that happens when you have uh, testimonies. Now, there's a great place for public testimony. The reason we don't do it around here is because I haven't had the time to train anybody yet. The problem when you get to most places who do public testimonies is they become, people are so self-absorbed, they don't know how to give a testimony to God. You end up glorifying the church. Oh, I'm so glad I came to this church. It's just so wonderful. And here I finally learned doctrine, blah, blah, blah. That's not glorifying God. That's glorifying the church. And that's carnality. Or you'll hear him talk about the pastor. Well, the pastor teaches doctrine. He's so great. He's so wonderful. Well, that's wrong. You're not there to glorify the pastor. You're there to glorify God for what you've learned. And the focus should be God. Other people stand up and they spend all their time talking about what a lousy, rotten sinner they were. And, you know, while they're talking about all the sins they used to commit, half the congregation's out of fellowship because they're judging them. Well, I didn't know you were so rotten. <laughs> and the other half is saying, man, I wish I hadn't gotten saved when I was so young. I could have had some fun. 
Still gotten saved. So now everybody's out of fellowship. No, I'm just... Uh, but that's what happens is people are so self-absorbed they don't know how to... And they don't know how to keep it short. They get up and they ramble or they mumble and they can't stand up and articulate in a paragraph or two what God has done for them and they end up talking about their problems and their situation and their crisis and pretty much you know everything about their crisis and very little about God. And what's glorified in that? The crisis, not God. So that's one reason I don't do a whole lot of that is because people don't seem to be able to do it very well without getting themselves into a lot of trouble. And if you can't keep the focus off yourself and off and on to God, then we're going to get into some some real problem in the realm of public testimonies and also that applies in public prayer as well. And so we see what happens here as they pray together. Blessed be the name of God. The focus is on who God is. We've studied again and again that a concept like name refers to the essence of God. To the Jewish mind, a name wasn't just a tag, not just a label. It refers to who and what somebody is. So, to get the gist of this, we ought to say, Blessed be the essence of God. We're thinking of the essence box. Sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, and immutability. Blessed be the essence of God forever and ever. God has existed from eternity past into eternity future. And what we're dealing with here is the revelation of His plan in time. And that's what He's revealed to Daniel. And then they go on. They say, for wisdom and might are His. See, it's not their wisdom. Daniel didn't handle the crisis with his wisdom, but with God's wisdom. He had learned doctrine so well that it shaped his thinking. And it was God's wisdom, not his wisdom, and might. God's omnipotence. So really what we're focusing on here is two characteristics of God. Wisdom is a function of his knowledge, his omniscience. And might is a function of his omnipotence. So they're praising his omniscience and his omnipotence. Then he says, and he changes the times and the season. The word for change means to literally transform. God is in charge of the details of human history. God is the one who alters, transforms uh, all events. He is the one who's in control of them. The word for seasons indicates uh, set times. So man doesn't set the times, God sets the times. God doesn't determine when kingdoms rise and when they fall. People do. I mean, people don't. God does. He removes kings and He raises up kings. He's in charge of nations. He's in charge of human history. Further, Daniel goes on to say in verse, verse 21, He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. See, that shows that God is responding. We've studied this in John 14. That God doesn't just give you everything there is to know and help you understand the Bible just in one lump sum. If you don't respond positively to what you've already learned and come to really understand that, then God's not going to give you more. You understand? It's, it's, it's the principle in Isaiah. We learn here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. You respond positively to what you've learned and uh, apply that in your life and then God takes you to the next step. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding to those who are negative and too many people say well first prove it all to me or give it all to me and then I'll decide well God won't reveal anything to them because they're arrogant they're neither wise nor are they men of understanding 
we see this again in this, this passage, that he, um, he reveals uh, mysteries, he reveals uh, secrets. And in Deuteronomy 2.29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things relate to the history of Israel. So when we look at the passage, he gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. In verse 22 it reads, It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. Those profound and hidden things, according to Deuteronomy 29.29, have to do with the history of Israel and Israel's relationship, we know, from these passages to Gentile kingdoms. God is the one He knows who knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. Now, darkness and light here are not moral terms. Darkness and light here, darkness refers to ignorance, ignorance of truth, and the light dwells with Him. Now, here's an interesting thing. The old rabbinic interpretation of this passage was that the light here referred to the Messiah. That the light here referred to the Messiah and that the Messiah dwelt with God. This reminds us of what the Apostle John says in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. John 1.4, we're told that that one, the Christ, was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. Every man, not just believers, but every single human being. That has to do with God's consciousness and common grace to all men. And it also tells us that anything that we know about God, anything that we're going to learn about God, ultimately is going to have something to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. All knowledge ultimately goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ, and every bit of knowledge is ultimately going to be Christ-centered. Remember, all things were created uh, by Him, and through Him there is nothing that is in creation that He did not create. And now we come to the thanksgiving part of the uh, prayer in Daniel 2.23, where Daniel says, To Thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for Thou hast given me wisdom and power. It is not from his own resources, but God has revealed this to him. It says, Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. So now they know, he knows the dream, and he can answer the, the king's request. And in the process, he's noticed he's not going to glorify himself. He's going to glorify God. So now we come to verses 24 through 29, which are going to tell us how Daniel presents the case before Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 24, we read, and this would have been the next morning, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So this must have been good news for Arioch because if he had any sense of integrity at all or any sense of professionalism as a soldier, he would have dreaded having to uh, uh, execute all of those wise men. So Arioch then, but Arioch is also a typical bureaucrat. If anybody here is a bureaucrat and you don't fit the pattern, pardon me if I offend you. He's out to get the credit for himself. See, that's how the unbeliever operates. Notice the contrast between Arioch and Daniel. Daniel's going to give all the credit to God, but Arioch is going to try to get the credit for himself. 
We've all known people like that. Then Arioch, verse 25, Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Now, did Arioch find him? No, he didn't. He wasn't out looking for him. He was out trying to kill everybody which were following his orders. But And Daniel came to him that morning. But no, he wants to get a little credit. It's been a while since he's had a pay raise. Hadn't had any of his benefits increased for a while. So he wants to get a little credit with the king that he did something. So he says, I found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Verse 26, The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar did not know Daniel by his Hebrew name Daniel, but by the name that had been given to him, Belteshazzar. Now also, a second point on verse 25, there's a formal introduction there. Daniel was there just the day before, but there had to be a formal introduction just to follow protocol in the courtroom. So Arioch is introducing Daniel. And then the king looks to him and says, Now are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in its interpretation? Now the interesting thing is in the the Aramaic, the you is in the emphatic position at the beginning of the sentence. You? Well, you're just a young guy. I don't even know who you are. You are going to make known to me this matter? Whatever had happened the day before when Daniel came in, Nebuchadnezzar had given him time, but he can't believe that this young inexperienced novice. Remember, he's still an apprentice. He's still going to school. He hasn't graduated yet. He is going to uh, answer the challenge. And the, the implication here in the courtroom is that this is before all of the council. Daniel's coming in and on one side are all the astrologers and, and uh, those in divination and on the other side are all of the magicians and all of the conjurers and the soothsayers and the whole council of the Wise men, the Chaldeans, are all there before the king, and Daniel comes in confident, stands tall, head erect, walks in poised, relaxed, calm, confident in the Lord because he knows he has the answer. He knows the truth. And so he answers in the presence of the king, verse 27, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Right in their faces. He says, All the human viewpoint systems, all the professors at Harvard, all the professors at Yale can't give you the answer to life's problem. Because as long as it's based on human viewpoint and not on the Scriptures, it's invalid. It's going to fall apart. It's never going to meet the challenge of the crises of life. Only the Word of God can do that. And Nebuchadnezzar, you are right to put that challenge before them to prove their system. They can't. It's impossible. Nobody's going to ever be able to prove all the human viewpoint systems of Darwinianism or all the other uh, false religions. They can't. Only the Word of God can do this. And we have the greatest, one of the greatest apologetics in the world. That's a defense for the truth of Christianity. No other religion. Buddhism doesn't have it. Hinduism doesn't have it. Islam doesn't have it. Only Christianity has consistent detailed, declared prophecy that comes to pass exactly as it was said to come to pass hundreds of years later. This is one of the greatest defenses of the truth of Scripture. And Daniel is going to use this here and now to prove that God is who He claimed to be. He says, the secret which the king demanded of these wise men, well, they'll never answer it because they can't. Human viewpoint can never solve the problems of life. 
They can't tell you anything about eternal life. They can't tell you anything about God. I don't care what the philosophy is. I don't care if it's Kantianism, Hegelianism. I don't care if it's existentialism, whether it's an ancient philosophy, whether it's Platonism or Aristotelianism. It can't answer the ultimate questions of life. Only the Bible can give us truth, and only the Bible is the guideline to handle the problems of life. So he makes a challenge, and he states who the author is in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven. This God controls the heavens. This God is over all the astral bodies. These guys are worshiping. And He is the one who reveals secrets. And He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter day. This God has revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, to you, O king, the history of mankind. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And now He is going to explain exactly what the dream was, and then he is going to tell exactly what the interpretation is. And so we will get into that and the outline of history and the precision of this incredible dream next time. Or we'll begin to next time, but before we can understand this, there are some things we're going to have to make sure we understand about the interpretation of prophecy. And so that will uh, we'll begin. And since we've gone through a lot in covenants and dispensations with that, I'm taking a whole new approach on the interpretation of prophecy that that will give you new information that we haven't covered before, so you won't want to miss that in the coming weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time that we have together to worship You through the study and teaching of Your Word, to fellowship together around the truth of Your Word that we might learn to see light in the light of Your Word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening unsure of their eternal life and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not based on works. It's not based on church membership. It's not based on any human factor. You don't have to bargain with God, make a deal with God, make a moral reformation of your life. All you need to do, right, you can do right now where you sit. And that is to trust Christ for your salvation. He paid the penalty, and we simply accept that as a free gift. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we have learned tonight in the example of Daniel and his friends, that we might continuously be be before you in the throne of grace with our petitions and intercessions, trusting you to solve all the problems in our lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.